I'm a material witness on an aggravated battery uh, with a hangout. Supreme in, Court uh, of the State of Arizona in April of 1965, after this court's decision in Escobedo, affirmed. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in Batson uh, against Kentucky. Welcome to another episode of Bears, The Bar and Beyond, the Baylor pre-law podcast. This week, we come to you from New York City in the offices of what was once again voted the nation's most prestigious law firm, with offices in London and here in New York, Cravath, Swain and more. And we're joined today by corporate lawyer and partner at Cravath, Richard Hall. Great to be here. Now, as you can hear probably from the accent, Richard is a fellow Australian. And uh, he started out at the University of Melbourne where you uh, studied commerce, got a Bachelor of Commerce, and then went on to law school from there. Shortly after, and I do mean fairly Mm -hmm. shortly, you ended up at Harvard. Can you tell us a little bit about what motivated that choice and what that experience was like? Sure. So I started work in Australia, uh, straight out of law school, doing what I would now call transactional law. I absolutely loved it from almost the first moment I started to work there. Mm. Frankly, much more than I thought I would. So it took me three months to realize this is what I wanted to do for a long time and in a serious way. It took me another three months to realize I had to get out of Australia. Mm. It's a wonderful place to grow up, but the opportunities for transactional lawyers there are more limited. Uh, Then took me three months to pick New York over London Uh and nine months to plan and execute my exit strategy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I didn't have to go to Harvard to get the LLM. Uh, under the New York State Bar rules, then I could have just come in and sat the bar. I wanted an opportunity to transition over to the United States uh, and to transition into the American legal practice. I actually had a great time at Harvard. It's where I met my wife. So I'll always look fond on Harvard for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, uh, was it a different style of teaching to what you'd experienced back in Australia? Uh, very much so. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, I was at the University of Melbourne quite a long time ago, and I'm sure things have changed in the 30 years. However, Melbourne at the time was much more black letter. They were much more focused on teaching a a large amount of substantive law, as opposed to the big major national US law schools that spend less time focusing on black letter law for sort of federal reasons mm-hmm. and, and more time focusing on what we might call the, the legal mindset or the, or the legal mode of thinking. Did you have Cravath in mind as you were going through? Had you identified a list of firms that did the kind of work that you were really interested in and had, had as, as targets? Uh, actually, even more than that, Ben. Uh, when I first arrived in the US, there were three firms to which I had introductions and I, mm-hmm. I interviewed at, at three firms and I ended up choosing Cravath. So I actually had my offer from Cravath by you know, three or four weeks into my one-year LLM. So oh, I, wow. I, I did have Cravath on the brain yeah. for most of that year. <laughs> what, what has been so good about your experience here that has made it the place that you started and the place that you've continued your legal career? It's interesting you ask that, Ben. Uh, every year when I see dozens of applicants it forces me to, to talk about Cravath and how I ended up here and how I chose Cravath over the other firms where I'd interviewed. Mm-hmm. At the time, I, I actually couldn't articulate why Cravath resonated with me. It, it actually took years of, of speaking to applicants uh-huh. and, and talking about Cravath that I was able to crystallize in, in my own mind how I chose Cravath. There were two things in particular. 
One is just sort of intellectual curiosity. I mean, I, I've always been a bit of a geek, <laughs> and you know, there's a, a an approach to transactional lawyering that permits me to engage in sort of deep thought about complex structuring questions, and, and Kramath has always uh, permitted me to do that. Yeah, the, the second thing is I've always been really driven, uh, and I've always been, to use some pop psychological term, internally motivated. Mm. Uh, and that kind of person thrives at a place like Cravath. Yeah. How is, what is it like to do this kind of work in a big law firm as opposed to a medium-sized firm or a smaller firm? Well, yeah, we at Cravath would actually say our M&A department is not all that big. Uh, at this point, we are noticeably smaller than some of our uh, other big firms, um, or some of the big firms in the US. The, the key thing is whether the firm where you're working gets the flow of work that will increase the likelihood or maximize the likelihood that a young transactional lawyer will get exposed to the kind of work that will develop him or her professionally. Mm-hmm. The advantage of being in a big firm is they get to see more work. They get to see more deals. And, and that just increases the likelihood that a young transactional lawyer will get the kind of experience that she's looking for. It's certainly possible in a small firm. Uh, it's just less likely. Mm-hmm. I can imagine the volume's pretty different. Yeah. yeah. Can you just, I um, guess, dive into what, what corporate law actually means because I think students are going to have different understandings of what what that actually entails what what falls under the umbrella of okay of, of, uh, it, law. It, interesting I'm going to use a slightly different term I'm okay. going to use the term transactional lawyering yeah because that that's really what most corporate lawyers on Wall Street do they, they do transactions the way to think about that is the vast majority of transactions you have your client you have the counterparty each, pers- each party comes to the transaction or the potential transaction with its own set of objectives, constraints, and alternatives. The primary job of the transactional lawyer is to learn her own client's objectives, constraints, and alternatives through various tactical means infer or determine the objectives, constraints, and alternatives of the counterparty and then build the transaction structure that m- best marries them. The analogy I sometimes use with young lawyers is you know, imagine a set of cogs in a machine. You can jam them together and with enough brute force make them turn yeah. and you might chip a few cogs off and crack and <laughs> overheat and maybe sometimes just completely seize up. You know, the job of the transactional lawyer is to build the structure that enables the cogs to turn. So we spend a great deal of time figuring out what's going on on our side of the table, what's going on on the other side of the table, and how we best marry them up so that each side is willing to transact. I know there's a little bit of getting to yes and one plus one equals three and all that kind of stuff and win-win in what I just said, but there's a substantial component of truth to some of those negotiating um, metaphors. And I imagine that approach is the same whether it's a six million dollar deal or a six billion dollar deal absolutely Uh, in an odd way smaller transactions are more challenging and more fun because things are more important in a six billion dollar deal people can be prepared to tolerate a little bit of extra 
you know, meshing of the gears and losing a few cogs going around. Yeah. In a $6 million deal, you know, getting it exactly right is more likely to be the difference between getting a deal done and no deal at all. And as a transactional lawyer, do you have folks who specialise in acting for particular parties or do you act for counterparties as well? In a transaction itself, you, do you have a special kind of client or can you just dig into that a little bit more? Sure. So within the broad rubric of transactional lawyering, there are a variety of different kinds of transactions. So I do primarily M&A work. Yeah, there are other people who do primarily capital markets work, bank financing, structured financing, yeah, all sorts of other skill sets. The similarities in my view, are greater than the differences across the various kinds of transactional lawyering. However, there is a real benefit to a modest level of expertise and, and, and specialization, so that uh, an M&A lawyer gets to learn the tools of the M&A trade. Yeah, coming back to my metaphor of, of building a machine that enables mm-hmm. the cogs to turn, if I keep pushing that metaphor, I talk about you know, who, what tools does an M&A lawyer have in her toolbox? And so there is benefit to specialization in making sure that you are on top of all the available tools in your toolbox. Within the M&A space, however, I represent buyers, sellers, private equity funds, strategics, financial institutions. I do public M&A. I do private M&A. I do a wide range of work. The Cravat M&A department is less specialized than some of our peer firms. Part of that is an institutional view that people continue to develop and learn over a long period of time. And one way you learn is by being put in different situations. Mm. Uh, So if you spend all your time representing the same buyer, then very rapidly your sense of what is normal and what is standard narrows. Your sense of the kind of problems you have to confront narrows. As a practitioner, if you consciously choose to represent a wide range of um, M&A counterparties in a wide range of transactions, you will keep, to keep using my metaphor, the tools in your toolbox very fresh. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it sounds like it's one of those areas that lends itself to a much more international flavor. So we have a lot of students who are either undergraduates or in law school who are interested in doing law from with some kind of international perspective and we can talk about things like shipping uh, reinsurance but this also sounds like an area that really does lend itself to that can you talk a little bit about the the international aspect of mergers and acquisitions sure i actually spend a great deal of time doing international m&a whether it's representing non-us companies that are doing transactions here or us companies that are doing transactions outside the us coming back to some of the things i said earlier about Uh, keeping the tools in your toolbox sharp. I really enjoy the international work because it constantly reminds me of how in in US M&A, what we do is a product of choice. Much of M&A is cultural, much of M&A is a function of legal and, and commercial choices that people routinely make. It's great for me to go to Spain Mm-hmm. and deal with very sophisticated, smart deal makers in Spain who just make different choices. And it forces me to think about why we do in the US the things that we do and how I can explain to a very smart Spaniard 
what's going on in his USM&A deal hmm. that is different to how he would do, in effect, exactly the same deal in Spain. So my best example of that, a few years ago, I was working with the local uh, general counsel of a French multinational. So I was talking to an American lawyer whose boss was uh, in Europe, in France. And we were talking about a potential public company M&A deal here, and she asked me a question. To a US M&A lawyer, the question was off the wall. But because I've done enough work in Europe and in France, I knew exactly where that question was coming from. So I answered the question to the general counsel, and then I said to her, I'm betting the reason you asked me that question is that your boss in Paris asked you that question. And the reason your boss asked you that question is that in French public M&A, here is how things get done. And so in a French M&A deal, this is important. However, in the US, because of this difference in law between US M&A and French M&A, this question just doesn't come up. So here's your answer, but it's not really relevant. And feel free to go back and tell your French boss that it's not really relevant. So you do, you're not only interacting with international corporations, but I imagine a lot of interaction with international lawyers as well, especially yep. if an American company is, an, is acquiring a, a deal in Europe and that's the law that's in play. You're interacting with colleagues over there to, to that, make sure it's in compliance? Well, that's, tr- that's right, Ben. But it, it's not just an issue of compliance. Okay. Um, yeah, part of it is making sure we are actually you know, checking the box in, in Germany or Spain or France, wherever we are. But if you come back to this metaphor I have, it, it's about making sure that people who are making business choices, you know, what, what they value and what they don't value, what risk they're willing to run, what risk they're not willing to run, how those choices get made in a way that's informed in light of US M&A structures. No client ever wants to do something that breaks the law, but frequently clients will find that within a particular legal system, they have choices to make, uh, to run some risks, to not run some risks. And how they make those choices are informed by the advice I give them, but also informed by their own experiences. So it's just a whole lot of fun talking to smart people outside the US about how we're going to do this deal where they're just bringing a different culture to exactly the same question. Is it the kind of work that can be very up and down or is it fairly predictable in terms of your day-to-day, month-to-month work? Uh, Month-to-month, completely unpredictable. Uh, (laughs) Day-to-day, right now I've got a pretty good sense of what my tomorrow is going to be like. Uh Uh, although I do have a call this afternoon, which could turn my tomorrow into you know, manure. Uh, uh, but no, it, it, it's, it's capable of being very volatile. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. and, and part of this is that our clients have business objectives. And in the M&A space, getting a transaction done quickly is normally a significant objective for both buyer and seller. Um, on that particular point, we say when we train young lawyers we talk about objectives but we also encourage them to be sensitive to when the two sides objectives are aligned when they're diametrically opposed and when they're sort of tangential Mm. in the m&a space most of the time both sides want to move quickly so when the business principles have struck their deal or they're close to doing a deal 
they want it to go quickly. Tell us a little bit about the, the workload someone could expect in M&A. Are we talking 60, 80 hours a week, some weeks where it's 40, and then you get a week or a month where you've got a whole bunch of deals going on and it's just hell for leather until it's sorted out? Um, let me a- answer that question by focusing on young lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would, if you were asking about me personally, I might say something a little different, but uh-huh. uh, given the intended audience of this podcast, let me focus on young lawyers. Sure. Uh, it, I- it is peaks and troughs, and the peaks will be very intense. Uh, I would say they're very exciting, mm-hmm. but that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they are, they're capable of being very intense. One, one point I will note is... Uh, one of the consequences of technology, particularly communications technology, as compared to when I started, in the peak of a deal now, there is almost no downtime. In the old days, when it took a while to distribute documents, you could get a document out and you knew you were going to have a couple of hours, minutes, days of, of downtime to relax and recharge. Catch your breath. Catch your breath. Yeah. Now... You can send out your black line. You can send it all out to the email by email, and it goes effectively instantaneously. And the other side gets it straight away. And you've got a record; they've got it. And you've got a record, <laughs> and 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 they're on it straight away. So, uh, the intensity of the M and A practice has certainly gone up for everybody, partners, but also focusing on, on younger lawyers. So that the peaks are very intense, um, but then. Uh, M&A transactions do tend to have a, an, a, an ebb and a flow to them. So, for example, I signed up a transaction uh, on Monday of last week. My team was working very hard for you know, four days straight to actually get to the signing. Right now, they've got some time off. Yeah, uh, we haven't staffed them on anything new because we know that on this transaction it's going to pick up again. Mm-hmm. And we've got a decent sense broadly of the time frame which it's going to pick up again so right now we're giving you know my team that worked pretty hard some time off one one of them's actually going on vacation for two weeks perfectly timed yeah uh, so he's going to come back fully recharged for the uptick uh, so it's certainly in the MA practice very significant peaks and and troughs different practices at least at Gravath have a different flow to them uh, in the MA practice uh, young lawyers tend to be working on fewer transactions, so uh, a, a peak in one transaction will tend to be a peak in workload. Mm-hmm. Lawyers working in other practices, say some of the capital markets practices, they tend to be working on more transactions. So as one transaction is peaking, another one might be troughing, so the workload is more stable. Mm. At least at Krath, the M&A associates do get much more of a, of a peak and trough than other practice groups. To what extent do you think uh, students and current law students need to be aware of changes in technology? Things like blockchain, for example. Uh, Do they need to be seeking out opportunities during their legal education to get exposure to some of that legal technology? Or is that something that you expect them to acquire once they arrive at the firm? Hmm. I I think... Students, young uh, law students, should pursue anything like blockchain that interests them. Mm. 
you know, to the extent somebody needs needs technology to perform their their work at a place like Karath, you know, we'll teach you the technology you need to know. Mm-hmm. I think it's valuable for you know, any young incoming lawyer to have any extra legal knowledge skill set that potentially bears upon what they do. Uh, you know, blockchain and technology will be one thing. Uh, you know, another thing in the current U.S. legal environment is. Uh, anything relating to you know, biochemistry. You know, it's for for uh, lawyers who are working in in patenting or IP or anything like that. Just knowing a bit about something like that is potentially very valuable. I would never suggest that all your young law students run off and study biochemistry. But if it, <laughs> but if it's something that is of interest, I would encourage you, uh, someone like that to you know, stay in touch with it and, and learn a bit about it. That's fantastic. I'd like to just take a little turn and look into life in a large law firm. So we've talked about uh, some of the the number of transactions that you get exposed to within a corporate team at a large firm versus somewhere else, um, and we've talked about the ups and downs which might you might encounter in some areas less so than others. What are some of the things that you think can be said to be real assets of working in a large law firm? Okay. Again, I'll focus on uh, younger lawyers. I believe that someone going through law school in the US at, at a major law school should think of her legal education as consisting of more than just the first three years. The way I would think about it is the first three years at, at law school are the grounding but the next three or four years will be the formative years in the development of a young lawyer's overall skill set. So I, I believe in thinking about where to go straight out of law school, a, a young law student or a potential law student should view it as part of a, a longer period of education. So let's take something like um, yeah, pub, public in, criminal defense work. Mm-hmm. Um, you would never think of coming to Cravath to learn criminal defense work. But what you could do is come to Cravath and learn how to litigate, learn how to gather evidence, marshal evidence, use experts. Yeah. Draft well. Draft well. Yeah. Yeah. So after three, four years at Cravath, you can regard yourself as a much more complete litigation lawyer and then say, okay, well, what I've always wanted to do now is criminal defense work in Waco, Texas, so let me go back. Yeah. And I'll have had my three years at law school and then my three or four years you know, substantially advancing my overall practical legal education, and then I will go do what I, what I really want to do. In the UK, uh, trainee lawyers will usually do a number of seats in different departments of the firm to get exposure. When someone joins a firm like Cravath, do they get allocated to a team and that's where they live? Or do they get rotated through a number of departments for a short period so they get that exposure? What's the, what's the approach with that? Okay, so Cravath is actually very different to I think every other US law firm in that respect. The first thing is that we don't rotate associates between our major departments. So we don't rotate them between litigation and transactional practice or between litigation and tax or Mm -hmm. something like that. But within both litigation and the corporate practice, the transactional practice, we rotate our associates for their entire time at Cravath. 
So a, a, a transactional associate might spend 15 months doing M&A, then 15 months doing capital markets work, then 15 months doing commercial bank lending, then maybe come back and do another 15 months doing M&A. Constantly keep, building that toolbox. That's right, constantly yeah. building the toolbox. Yeah. And, and down in the, on the litigation side of the house, somebody might spend 15, 18 months doing merger clearance and another 18 months doing uh, IP litigation and another 18 months doing M&A litigation and, and so on. Uh, and, and on the cravath side, that is driven by the view of this as a training process. Mm. If you think about how Baylor Law School teaches, they teach by asking students or demanding that students spend six months learning something with one professor and then move on and, and constantly you know, change subjects, move to more advanced subjects, move, go with different professors based on a pedagogical view that that's the right way to teach a young lawyer. If you view the first three or four years of a practice as part of that training, we view the same benefit in rotating. The choice between litigation and transactional is more interesting. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think in the UK, and you're right, and they do it differently, their problem is that the people they're talking with are much more junior. Mm. They, they haven't had enough life experience to be able to judge which one they like. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the US with more people taking time off between college and law school. Our experience is that most people over a very short period of time, say as a summer associate at Karath, if they're exposed to both litigation and transactional work, they will quickly decide which one they like. So we don't, we don't feel the need to rotate people between litigation and corporate for them to decide, and we don't think there's the pedagogical benefit of doing it, so we don't do it. I think one of the other things people are attracted to when they think of big law is the fact that a lot of firms are going to have offices not just across the United States, but across the world. How much opportunity is there for student, uh, for associates to move um, between offices, say from here to Shanghai or here to Paris or London? Okay, well, in the case of Cravath, we only have one office outside the Th- US. That's right, you have London. But we have London, and, and so the answer is great opportunity at Cravath to move yeah. between uh, New York and London. And that seems fairly common with with other firms that you you interact well, with colleagues? Well, um, I- interesting. Yeah, because I'm not from the US, uh, I urge US trained lawyers to spend time outside the US. It goes back to something I said earlier. Yeah. The benefit of being exposed to smart people in a different legal system and, and being forced to confront sort of what is fundamental versus what is a choice is I just think a great thing for any young lawyer as part of their learning experience. So I encourage anyone at any young lawyer who asks me at Cravath to spend time in our London office. Uh, yeah, other firms with, with a more wide-ranging um, uh, office network is, still do have that opportunity. Uh, for those uh, uh, listening to the podcast who are thinking about this, one important point to, to note about any firm is what kind of law they do in their local office. So... For a US-trained lawyer, there's not a whole lot of stuff to do in Paris. Uh, So firms that have large Paris offices tend not to need US lawyers there. In that sense, the Cravath London office is a little different because we only do New York law in London, so we need New York lawyers. Uh, But there certainly is an opportunity to to, to work 
internationally uh, most of these firms. Fantastic. I, I just want to be conscious of your time. I've had a number of students, both undergrads and current law students, send in some questions that they wanted to pose to you. Okay. And they primar- primarily revolve around the question of recruitment. How important is the law school that they attend? Uh, it is quite important. Uh, when we look at law schools, and based upon our historic experience, you know, we have a sense of you know, what a particular grade level translates to in terms of the uh, raw intellectual horsepower to do our mm-hmm. job. And you know, to be blunt, we would think, we, we are pre- normally prepared to go deeper in the class at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago, uh, places like that. Uh, so if you go to finish in the top third of your class at law school, then you're certainly better off <laughs> finishing the top third of your class at a, at a true top law school. It's not the end of the world. You know, we also understand that many people, for completely understandable personal reasons, uh, you know, go to a law school that isn't a top five or a top ten law school. And, and we have partners at Cravath, or we had part, retired partners at Cravath you know, from University of Iowa Law School. Uh, so it's, it's not the end of the world. If somebody is making a choice, so they have the, the grades, the admissions, and the financial resources, and yeah. that's, a, that's a real issue. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you've got a choice, then my recommendation would be to go to the highest ranking law school you can get into. If you don't have a choice and yeah, you, you, you're going to the University of Texas because you're an in-state resident there and it's a you know, great law school and you get subsidized education, then go to U- University of Texas and be proud of it and come out near the top of your class. Yeah, so I mean, that, that goes without saying that grades are, Gra- are very important. Gra- grades matter. Uh, the significance of grades at most big law firms is primarily about just cutting off. We see so many applicants, we couldn't possibly interview them all. Mm. Um, We couldn't possibly fly them all back to our office to have them for half day or all day interviews here. We've got to cut them off somehow. And for better or worse, the easiest way to cut them off is is grades. So whatever law school uh, any of the listeners go to, my recommendation would to do as well as you possibly can. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. What about the importance of things like journals and law review? Are they given significant weight when you're considering applicants? On the litigation side of the house, yes. Okay. On the transactional side of the house, less so. Obviously, if somebody is an editor of of the law review, that's a sign that their grades are sufficiently good. Um, but beyond that, on the transactional side, it's of less interest. Uh, on, on the litigation side, because so much more of what they do is you know, pure legal writing, it's more of a plus. Hmm. I think uh, a lot of current undergraduates and soon-to-be 1Ls uh, are used to this idea of in college you have to build a resume full of as many extracurriculars as possible, or at least that's the perception. Is it safe to say that in the context of 
law school, you are far more interested in grades, class position, quality of school, and things like law review as you consider an applicant. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. I, I won't say they're irrelevant to us. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly on the transactional side of the house, there are a, a set of social skills that are important. Yeah, the ability to, to read a room, the ability to work within a team, the ability to co-opt others around the table to seeing your point of view. So yeah, there is a, a social component to it that is important. One way of showing the social component is showing leadership in extracurricular activities. Mm. But you know, unlike, for example, the old adage of if you want to get into college, you've got to go build houses in Guatemala. We're not particularly interested in seeing people who've built houses in Guatemala, mm -hmm. but people who, who have led organizations. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it's, it's less about what the organization is and more about the fact that someone has the social skill and the leadership skills to get to a leadership position. That's interesting to a transactional lawyer. What advice would you have for folks who, working at Cravath would be a dream, but they're not at a T14 law school. What, what can they be doing to maximise their prospects of joining a firm as prestigious as Cravath? At, at once you get to, um, let's say that second level down of, of the national law schools, it's just very, very important to come near the top of the class. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said earlier, we, we fully understand that for a whole bunch of reasons, people might not be able to go to a, to a top 10 school, mm -hmm. top 15 school. Um, and, and therefore, there are some you know, really, really smart people who just didn't go to a top 15 school. But we, we need to see that they're really, really smart. Yeah. Uh, so I work just very, very hard at doing very well. Tell us a little bit about uh, how firms like Cravath value clerkships, judicial clerkships. Uh, are they seen as uh, a good opportunity for students to pursue after law school before joining private practice? Or uh, what's, what's the view taken? Okay. Um, on the transactional side of the house, we don't view them as particularly valuable. And indeed, if, if we saw on the transactional side of the house somebody who'd you know, clerked in the Second Circuit and then clerked on the Supreme Court, we would actually be thinking, hmm, maybe she's not really interested in working for us. Yeah, why, why is M&A <laughs> on the list? Why yeah. has she got M&A high on the list? Uh, but on, on the litigation side of the house, no, they, they do value clerkships um, uh, very highly uh, and would always be interested in in seeing an applicant who has uh, an attractive or prestigious clerkship under a belt, or, or in, in her future. Okay. I guess the last question is a reflective one for you. As you look back on a very prestigious career, what are some things that you would do differently if you had your time again? If anything. If anything. Um, I would actually spent more time in our London office. Uh, I can sympathise with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, I, I've, I've lived in the, worked in the US for 30 years. It, uh, 
it would have been you know, nice looking back on it to spend some time. Yeah, as I went through, there was never a sort of a good time to do it, whether it was for me professionally or for my wife and I personally, there's never a great time to do it. But looking back, I, I think, you know, I should have, we should have you know, sucked it up at some point and, and, and made a move spent and spent, time, yeah. spent you know, two to five years, something like that, uh, in London. Uh, I also, looking back on it, would have um, uh, perhaps invested more time in understanding technology. Hmm. Uh, I've always been very utilitarian about technology. Does it make my life easier? Yeah. I've never really invested a whole lot of time understanding you know, where it's going and what it's doing. I'm actually doing more of that now as, I, as we think about the impact of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, but I don't really understand what they're doing. <laughs> uh, as I look back on my career, there were a couple of times... Uh, when I had a professional opportunity to do that. Uh, once when uh, I was doing a lot of work for IBM and another time when I was doing a lot of work for AOL, back when AOL mattered. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, believe it or not, there was a time when AOL and Google had negotiations and AOL was the gorilla and Google was the upstart oh, looking for help. I remember AOL, yeah. yeah um, but you probably don't even remember when Google was a startup. No. Uh, I remember hearing the, the Google people talking in a, in a nascent way about where this would all go. Yeah. yeah I, I sometimes you know, wonder, you, know, you take... Um, a page in Brin and pump them full of truth serum and say, yeah, back in 2002, did you have any idea where you would go with this? Yeah. Um, I have so much respect for those two. Um, uh, and uh, I, I just don't know what they'd say. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that would be an issue for me. I think I probably should have invested more time in just sort of understanding technology. Okay. Very last question. Not all our students, but an awful lot are from Texas. And when we talk about where would you like to live, where would you like to work, a lot of the time the answer is Texas, but it's not always. Um, you know, we've both worked and practiced in major cities. Can you just share with us some of the highlights and some of the draws of working in a jurisdiction like New York? Okay. Well, it's, it's actually easy to compare New York to Texas. Uh, to, to paint with a very broad brush about the U.S. legal market. Basically, over the last hundred years, New York has consumed what, what had otherwise been very strong local markets. You know, the, the Chicago law firms have all expanded because Chicago wasn't big enough. The Boston firms have expanded. The Atlanta firms have expanded. The Miami firms have expanded. The Seattle firms have expanded. You know, the The idea of a of a small local firm that does very high quality local work uh, is under attack everywhere in the U.S. But two places: one is Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. the other one is the oil patch, Houston, Dallas. Uh, and that's in, in Silicon Valley and Houston, Dallas. It's it's sort of the same phenomenon that plays out in two different places. The wonderful thing about practicing law in New York, as opposed to either Silicon Valley or the Texas oil patch, is that we get to play in Silicon Valley and we get to play in the oil patch. 
But we also get to play in Atlanta and Miami and the, the Northeast and the Midwest. Yeah, the, the New York firms get a wider range of work. And of course, we get to play internationally in a way that you know, the, the oil patch firms and the Silicon Valley firms just don't get to play. I imagine it follows you too through your career as you, yeah. you spent time in New York. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is right. So from a, the perspective of the professional development of a young lawyer from Texas, the benefit of leaving Texas to go to a place that just exposes you to a whole lot more work, even if the plan is then to go back to Texas, mm. if you think about this as an investment in a, in a lifetime in the law and think about where will you best be trained, the ability to you know, see a wide range of work, be exposed to a wide range of deal makers who think about transactions in a particular way, or if people are interested in the litigation side of the house, you know, a, a much wider range of litigation. I mean, the, the breadth of litigation that our, our litigators here see as compared to what someone would see in Houston or what somebody would see in Palo Alto, it's extraordinary. Yeah. So as you think about you know, how you get educated, the, uh, spend some time away from Texas uh, to get the breadth of experience that will then permit you to develop your own style as a lawyer, and you can then go lawyer back in Texas if you wish. Wonderful. Richard, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, and uh, best wishes to all the listeners. Thank you. Thank you.